0: morning, everyone. Thank you, Jean. Uh, As a church, we're now three months into this journey through this Bible and through the big story. And for the next 20, 25 minutes or so, we're going to look at Exodus 32 to 34. It starts on page 90 of the Bibles that are in the pews. And these are really, really important chapters in the story because they record a number of key moments that together create a kind of watershed in terms of understanding God's character and how he relates to this world. And last week we got to the bit where Moses was given the Ten Commandments and that was in Exodus 20 and then for the next three chapters God continues to give Moses A whole bunch of laws to help the community to work out what you do in certain situations. So for example, what do you do if you smack your slave in the mouth and their tooth falls out? Or what happens whenever sheep rustling becomes a problem? Or how do you deal with a witch? It's all there. And the point of these, and lots more like them, was because God was in the process of forming a community. And in order for people to know what it means to live together, and not only live together, but to live with their God, there needed to be boundaries. There needed to be guidelines. And there also needed to be advice on how do you deal with people who step over the mark. And whenever Moses shared all these laws, and all these instructions with the people, they signed up. And so in Exodus 24, We read that the people said, listen, Moses, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And then a few verses later, they said, we will obey. And so the future looked good. The people seemed to be on board. They had verbalized their (laughs) obedience. So God then invites Moses back up the mountain. And he invites him to come back up to receive further instructions for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, Moses receives detailed plans regarding the construction of the tabernacle, this sanctuary where God is going to dwell amongst his people. And while Moses and Joshua are up this mountain, and more about him tonight as Gina said, while they are away, Aaron and Hur are left with the responsibility of being in charge, And in Exodus 32, we discover what actually happens in Moses' absence, and a beggar's belief. Because the people get impatient, and they decide to make gods who will go before them. Now they were explicitly told not to do this. Don't make idols. There's only me. The one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so all this talk of everything the Lord has said we will do and we will obey, it's all short-lived. You see, it's one thing to say you'll be obedient. It's something altogether different to live it out. Actions always speak louder than words. And deciding to make gods was tragic, but actually wanting these gods to go before them was pathetic. Because up to this point, God had gone before them. And what these people were saying whenever they said, let us make gods who will go before us, they were effectively ditching God's leadership and protection. And God had gone before them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And he had looked after them in so many tangible ways. But here at the beginning of Exodus 32, these people decide, you know something, it's time to move on. Let's get involved in a little bit of self-made religion. We don't actually need God anymore. He's been good up to now. But let's make some of our own gods and let's look to them to lead us. They still needed to worship. That's the way we've all been wired. And they still needed direction. And so they create these counterfeit gods. And they look to them to provide a way forward in life. You see, whenever the one true God is not worshipped, it's not that people stop worshipping. People still worship. They just don't worship God, but they create substitutes in God's place. And although the behaviour here at the beginning of this chapter is, for those of us who have been following the story, it's almost laughable. It should provoke some serious soul searching on our own part and by all who read this story. Because even though we may not melt down our bling and manufacture idols of gold, we still face the temptation to worship counterfeit gods. And our modern manifestations of idolatry, money, success, power, sex, to name just four... Those counterfeit gods are no less foolish and they are just as harmful to our spiritual well-being. What is the focus of your worship, really? And where are you looking to for direction in life? The people decide to make gods. And as for Moses, well, the text says he's been gone for such a long time let's just move on without him as well. You see, it's fascinating how quickly not only God gets forgotten, but godly leadership is forgotten. And so they turn to Aaron. And incredibly, he goes with the flow. In fact, he takes a lead in making the golden calf. And then in some bizarre attempt to bring God into this, into this blatant disobedience. What Aaron suggests they do is, look, let's build an altar in front of this idol. Let's hold a festival to the Lord. And let's get everybody to make sacrifices and present fellowship offerings. And you do wonder what's going through people's heads here. And yet, as I've thought about this during the week, there is something disturbingly familiar about this. About that mindset and that practice. Where people attempt To bolt God on. Or add some God talk. And some good religious practice. Alongside an idolatrous lifestyle. As a way of trying to justify themselves. Or make themselves feel better about the wrong choices they're making. Happens time and time again. When the object of our worship is something else. But then we just bolt on some God talk. And it doesn't work, and it can't work, and as these people are trying to make it work, God reacts. And as a result of their behaviour, the people's behaviour, God faces three major decisions. And these decisions and how they're actually influenced by Moses will shape this story. In fact, these decisions and how they're influenced by Moses shape the rest of the story of the Old Testament and shape our story. And the first decision God has to make is whether or not to destroy these people. To say God was angry is an understatement. Have a look at verse 7 because even the shift in pronouns reveals something. What God says is, Moses, go down because your people have become corrupt Your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. No longer is it my people. No longer is it the people that I carried on eagles' wings. God is just done with them. He just says, Moses, your people, who you brought. And as God watches this, in a sense, this freak show that is happening down at the foot of this mountain, he reacts. Now whether people thought God won't actually see what we're doing because he's somehow preoccupied with Moses and Joshua up that mountain whether people thought God wouldn't actually see one thing but actually God makes it clear to Moses I've seen it not only have I seen it but he says I've heard every word they've said and as James Bruckner writes idolatry and all kinds of intentional sin are the result of living as if God cannot see and the reality is God sees and hears everything. His eyes scan the whole earth, according to Second Chronicles 16. God misses nothing. You can't keep secrets from God. And if these people thought, well, God will just overlook this, or God will leave us alone to get on with it, they were so badly mistaken. And so what God does is he tells Moses, Moses, walk away from me. Leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn against them, and so that I may destroy them. And then says God, you know, I'll make you into a great nation. In other words, I'm going to take this lot out, and I'm going to start all over again with you. And I don't know how you handle this aspect of God's character. His searing anger, his wrath and his judgment. How, how do you handle that? Do you avoid it? Do you tone it down? God is a loving father, but he is also a wrathful judge. Most of us know John three sixteen, but we're not as familiar or as comfortable with John three. 36 for god so loved those who reject the son will not see life god's wrath remains on them god cannot tolerate wrong and he won't forever judgment for unconfessed sin is inevitable But what Moses does next makes a massive difference to an otherwise ominous situation. Look at verse 11. Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. He didn't make excuses for Israel. There were no excuses to be made for their behaviour. He didn't question the justice of God's anger. God had every right to burn with anger what he did do was he asked God to turn from his fierce anger and the way he did it was he reminded God and I find this incredible, he reminded God that he was a redeemer listen God, you rescued this lot you brought them out of Egypt and he also did it by reminding God of his promises to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, God you said you were going to make their descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, you weren't didn't say you were going to make them extinct. And then the narrative says, and here is the outcome of God's first decision. Then the Lord relented. And he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now I must admit, when I first read that during the week, I struggled. I struggled with this idea of a God who relents. Because it sounds like, or it comes across to me, that God gave in, that God backed down, that God couldn't actually go through with it, that God lacked backbone. And yet, when I scratch a bit deeper, I discover that the basic meaning of the verb is had compassion or felt sorrow. And that makes so much sense based on what the Bible teaches about the character of God. Yes, God was angry, yes, the people deserved to face the natural consequences of their sin. Yes, they deserve to face god 's natural justice right that moment. but god 's heart <coughs> breaks at that prospect breaks, and his sorrow was expressed in compassion in. Relenting. And we'll come back to that at the end. So God relented. But there's another challenge or dilemma in my thinking here. And it concerns the role and the influence of Moses. If Moses, if Moses had not sought the favor of God. If Moses had not intervened. Would God still have relented? I don't know. So God relented. And Moses must have been relieved. And so with two stone tablets in hand which contain the covenant, he and Joshua make their way back down the mountain to face the music, literally to face the music. And based on what they see which is just exactly as God described it, Moses now experiences the same feelings that God had. Moses burns with anger. And he smashes the tablets to smithereens. He grinds the golden calf to powder. He puts the powder in the water. And he makes the Israelites drink it. Moses did not relent or have compassion. And then Moses confronts his older brother. He confronts Aaron. And what does Aaron do? He points the finger at everybody else and he lies through his teeth. He comes out with a classic, verse 24. He says, listen Moses, I threw all this jewellery into the fire and guess what, out came a calf." And the truth is, actually, as the text says earlier, Aaron fashioned, formed their gold jewellery into a calf. It's interesting, you know, that whenever someone who should have known better, whenever a man or woman of faith, whenever a Christian is actually confronted about their sin, Or challenged about their misbehaviour. They either blame others. They attempt to justify their choices. Or they simply deny their part in any wrongdoing. I've seen it happen so many times. And Aaron claimed that this calf was somehow magically self-generating. He doesn't appear to accept his role. He doesn't appear to accept his responsibility. He doesn't appear to repent. And you know, there is no time this morning to trace Aaron's story. But what subsequently happens to Aaron is a scandal. A scandal of God's grace. But we don't have time to go there. (coughs) Moses then gives the people an opportunity to repent. He asked Aaron what he was at. Aaron didn't so much repent he then gives the people an opportunity to repent and he stands at the entrance of the camp and Moses says to everyone, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And only the Levites respond. And then they help to restore law and order by killing 3,000 people. According to verse 25, you see, the people were out of control. In fact, they were so out of control they'd become a laughing stock. Their enemies were just having a laugh at them. And clearly these people were determined to persist in their disobedience. And although there are real aspects of this that I struggle with. This idea that the Levites step forward and then are just given the the job to go and kill 3,000 people. Although there's so much of this I find difficult to process and understand. The reality is that whenever people choose to live apart from God, without God, and in blatant rebellion to God and his ways... Death and judgment are inevitable. To never repent of your sin has got massive implications. Massive. And for the sake of this community, something extreme had to happen and it did. And some sort of order was restored. But now God faces his second major decision. Is he going to now go with the people or not? Is his presence going to go with them or not? And initially it looks like it's not. Because look at Exodus 33, verse 3. Go up to the land, Moses, flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. I'm not going. Because you're a stiff-necked people and I actually might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard this, they were distraught. And in steps Moses again. And again, I find this incredible because God reverses his decision on the basis of Moses' intervention. And God actually says, okay, Moses, I will now go with the people. So what alters God's decision this time? What's the turning point here? And based on the text, the only reason that I can offer and the only one that makes any sense to me without trying to do some mental gymnastics is that God reverses his decision on the basis of Moses' personal friendship with God. Look at verse 11 of 33. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And there's something very beautiful and very moving about this. And based on these intimate moments, God responds positively to Moses' request. And he says, okay, my presence is going to go with the people. And God actually says, I'll do the very thing you've asked me to do, Moses. I'll do the very thing you've asked me to do. Because you know what? I'm pleased with you. And I know your name. I'm pleased with you. And I know your name. And the idea in this offer of a first name terms relationship with the God who created. The God whose anger does burn. The offer of that friendship and that relationship runs right through the Bible. In fact Jesus on one occasion said, you know something? You're no longer my servants. You're actually my friends. Moses was a friend of God. And that meant that connection and conversation and a desire to please him was now on the agenda. And based on their friendship, based on their friendship, that's the only reason I can give, based on their friendship, God says, okay, Moses, I'll go with these people. And then finally we come to God's third decision. Is God going to forgive or not forgive? In other words, was there any hope? (coughs) Was there a way back for these wayward people? And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and this is where we're finishing this morning. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we find the answer. And these words here are so fundamentally important to the whole story of the Bible that actually they get repeated in various formats and contexts time and time again. You cannot overemphasize the importance of Exodus 34, 6 and 7a. Because here we find a critical snapshot of who God is. Here's his character, here's his heart. And this actually sets up and clarifies the way God is going to deal with his people from here on in. The hope that's locked up in these words is life-changing. And God, it says, passed in front of Moses at Sinai. And he says, I am the compassionate and the gracious God. I'm slow to anger, Moses. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And as I was preparing for this this morning, I came across one way to look at this, one way to remember it, and to see how these five expressions and descriptions of God actually relate to each other. And I think this is helpful, at least I hope it is. I want you to picture a triangle. And at either side of the bases are the first and the last statements about God. And up the sides of the triangle are the second and fourth statements. And finally at the top is the middle statement. And the point of this picture is to suggest that the first and the last statements go together. The second and the fourth statements go together. And the third statement is central to all five. And if we start at the top, this idea of God abounding in love and faithfulness, it implies a constant giving that actually there is an abundance of love to give. And if we see this triangle as depicting God's heart, almost like a volcano, constantly exploding in an overflow of love and faithfulness that spills out and goes on spilling out for his people. And in the middle, we find that God's love is actually maintained to thousands. In other words, it lasts It's a love that perseveres. It's a love that just keeps on giving. But alongside that is the fact that God is slow to anger. You see, if God immediately judged every time I messed up, every time I sinned, every time I did or thought something wrong, if God was to judge, I'd be wiped out in a split second. But from Sinai, God declares to Moses, Moses, see from here on in, and I was slow to anger, so that I can maintain love to thousands. In other words, God is long-suffering. He is extraordinarily patient. It doesn't say or it doesn't mean God will never express his anger. God will judge. And as this story continues, God does judge. And justice will be done. And the guilty will be punished as it actually says at the beginning of, or the second half of verse 7. But thank God for all our sakes. He slow to anger. And then we come to the final phrases. Because the reason that God is slow to anger in spite of our sin is because he's compassionate and gracious. And it's because he forgives our sin. He doesn't ignore it. He forgives it. All of it. That's why in a sense there are three different words used there. Rebellion, wickedness, sin. And for those who come in repentance to God they discover that he's compassionate and he's gracious and he forgives. And I love that picture. That, if you like, triangle of God's mercy. But more importantly, I love what it reveals about who God is. Because you see, it says, listen, there is a way back. There is hope. There is forgiveness. And as Moses discovers this, And as we're about to take communion, I thought this would be a great way, hopefully a great way to prepare for communion. But you know, whenever Moses hears this about his God, and whenever he hears that this is the way God is going to deal with those golden calf worshipping Israelites, what does Moses do? It says, Moses immediately threw himself on the ground and worshipped. Then he said, Lord, travel with us. And forgive our sin. And in light of this this morning. That's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to invite you to worship. I'm not suggesting you throw yourself on the ground. But you may want to kneel in response. I'm also inviting you to ask God to travel with you this week on your journey. And as we come to this table. I'm also asking you to ask God to forgive your sin because we all have sinned this week but this speaks of forgiveness ultimate forgiveness